0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. I'm Sam Lum, Director of Private Wealth and Capital Markets at CFA Institute. I'm joined here today at CFA Institute's India Investment Conference in Mumbai by Dr. Clint Laurent, CEO and founder of Global Demographics. Our topic of discussion today is about the demographic trends and dynamics in the Asia Pacific within the global context, and the implications for investors. Dr. Laurent, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. China and India are two countries with a mega population of more than a billion. How would you compare and contrast the key demographic trends and dynamics in these countries?
1: Okay, that's a good question about to how those two countries are going to develop in the future. A lot of people think they will do the same because they've both got very large populations, relatively cheap labour forces, and therefore have exactly the same future potential. But actually they're very different. Um, And perhaps it's really quite important to underline what those differences are. First of all, perhaps people don't realise that over half of China's population is over the age of 40 whereas half of India's population is under the age of 25. That gives a major platform difference. Uh, to, to give you an example of it, in the case of China, its total population growth has now peaked. Um, it starts to decline in 2018 and continues to, to decline thereafter. In terms of labor force, in the next 20 years, China's total labor force Or declined by 17% or 120 million people. So China's engine is decreasing in size and it's getting a much older consumer society. Now, don't interpret that necessarily as being a negative. It's just how it is changing. We'll come back to the implications shortly. In case of India, of course, it's got a lot of young people. And because it's got a lot of young people, it's got a lot of people entering the family formation stage. So for the next 20 years... Even with the declining birth rate, India will add um, a net population growth of 14 million per annum, but actually have 25 million births per annum, which is an awful lot of children to educate and to help make capable members of society. So it's got this big engine of a lot of people coming in, which sounds really good, but then to be successful, it's going to have to educate those people and find jobs for them. I mean, education will make them employable, Being employable is not enough on its own. Society has to provide them with jobs as well. So you've got that big change. The second big difference between the two economies is their urbanisation. India at the present moment is around about 29% of its population uh, designated as being urban. And by uh, 2021-22, it'll be about 31-32%. In other words, it's not going up very much at all. Um, And it's not going up very much at all because manufacturing jobs and that are not existing in sufficient number to attract people with their present education standards. In comparison, in China, um, over the last few years, there's been a huge rural urban migration such that by 2011, 49% of the population are designated as urban. And over the next 20 years, that will get up to around about 63 or 64% of the population. And urban employed labour forces, or manufacturing employed labour forces, which is what it effectively is, are more productive. And with that, that's what's driven the Chinese economy. The Indian economy, because it's not got that shift taking place, hasn't got that engine driving it. So, in a sense, the economy cannot be expected to grow as rapidly as China and cannot be expected to grow the middle class as fast as China did. So, really, very different countries in terms of potential outcomes at this point in time.
0: How about Japan? What's the situation there?
1: Um, Yes, it's good that you should ask about Japan because people tend to have forgotten about it or dismissed it. I mean, the popular theory about Japan is it's lots of old people um, its labour force is shrinking, it won't be able to look after the old people, and the economy will go into decline. In actual fact, you couldn't be more wrong. Um, first of all, let's agree on one point. Yes, the Japanese population is ageing, and at the present point in time, the only age group that's growing in size is 70 years plus. So that's a reality. But it actually has a fairly flat population um, curve, going backwards. In other words, um, all the age groups are relatively similar size there afterwards, so it's shuffling forward, if you like. Now, what people don't appreciate is that Japan's labor force is not shrinking. Um, Over the next 10 years, it stays pretty much exactly where it is now, and then from about 2021 through to 2030, it'll drop by about 3 to 4 million On a labour force of about 80 million, so not too bad actually. Uh, 60 million, I beg your pardon. So not too bad. Um, And the reason for that is the average lifespan in Japan now um, for a person who is 65 is at least till about 83. So they're going to live for another 20 years they've had a good nutritional history, they have a very high standard of education by global standards, and they actually don't want to sit around and do nothing. In fact, they can't afford to because they're going to live another 20 years and they're going to have to finance it. Japan has changed its pension laws and its labor laws now that effectively 69 is now retirement age rather than 64, and that puts a lot more people still in the labor force. The second characteristic of Japan is the older female i.e. females over 45, their child has grown up and left home. Um, they also are very well educated, and their attitude towards being employed has changed, and they're entering the labour force, and it is one of the fastest-growing segments of the labour force in the world. So that's boosting it as well. So Japan's not running out of workers. In fact, it is second only to China in the whole world to having the lowest number of dependents per worker. So the Japan economy will chug on quite nicely. The average Japanese household is seventy seven thousand u s dollars depending on the exchange rate, but there are abouts that income's going at one upper one percent per annum, which is, means that they 're getting about seven uh, hundred and seventy extra u s dollars a year they 've got the house, the house is fully equipped they 've got everything they need in actual fact, they have a very nice lifestyle they can afford to save, and they can afford to engage in discretionary expenditure and I would point out that that seven hundred and seventy u s dollar increase in income far exceeds the income of a Chinese household with 8% growth in its income on a $5,000 US income. So, you know, the Japanese economy actually provides a bigger opportunity than many of the so-called high-flying economies. So rethink Japan is my advice.
0: What are some of the countries in the Asia-Pacific where demographic dynamics looks particularly interesting?
1: you really need to look at the Asia Pacific as being two two regions um, not geographically but sociologically and demographically um, what we call is you've got affluent Asia and developing Asia um, and affluent Asia of course is South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore etc and developing Asia is pretty much the rest of Asia but excluding <coughs> India and China because yeah we've already discussed those already I mean the first thing is affluent Asia is people have perhaps, again, not quite appreciated how important it is as a consumer market. Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, you know, four of the wealthiest countries in the world. They've got very sophisticated consumers, very well-educated consumers. And in all four countries, um, perhaps slightly less for Taiwan than for the other three, um, but the other three are all what you'd call working-age empty-nester societies now. That's where the majority of the adult population now have no children in the home, but they have at least one and probably two wage earners in those homes. They're all very well educated by international standards. They all have high earning power. Um, you know you're talking of an average household income across these countries in excess of 30,000 US dollars which is a lot by world standards so you're talking of a a select group of very affluent consumers um, well-educated consumers um, trying all sorts of new products new services new lifestyles and have the money to do it and all of these societies have also developed quite good health systems so while there is still pressure on them for for pensions and savings, etc., they're not quite under the gun as much as, say, the less developed economies, because there is a good health system there, there is an insurance system, etc. So they can actually start to spend some of this money on other things. Um, So collectively, you know, affluent Asia is as nearly as important as Western Europe in terms of total consumption power, and it perhaps hasn't got the same um, clouds hanging over it as Western Europe has at this present point in time. So good economies to look at for for driving um, up a um, higher margin consumer products and services. If we look at developing Asia, um, again, I actually reckon there's a lot of good stories there which have got lost in all the media hype about China and India. Um, You don't see a lot about Indonesia or Thailand, etc., And yet those economies have come on quite well. They're much, much less affluent, of course. They are much, much younger. um, So they do have some problems in terms of, you know, bureaucracy or investment um, issues and things like that. But they're not impossible problems. And I actually think a lot of people have been doing quite well by looking at these. Indonesia is the obvious one, of course, because it's got again a very large population and um, it's getting its corruption under control, um, it's encouraging foreign investment the, the consumer spending patterns are changing quite dramatically as it is developing a middle class by its standards which is good news um, so it's good I mean same for Thailand of course uh, Philippines perhaps not developing as much as it could could do which is a little bit of a pity but it will perhaps catch up um, and Vietnam of course is still Uh, by anyone's standards poor but it's going in the right direction so all of them effectively are offering quite good new opportunities to come up the only thing in terms of all those four areas i mean indonesia thailand philippines and vietnam is there is an increasing dichotomy between the rich and the poor i mean if you take thailand Bangkok basically accounts for the affluent consumer in Thailand. Um, yes, I know Chiang Mai and that have, has you know, some as well, but really you'd be 80% of them would be located in one city in Thailand. Jakarta with Indonesia has got the same scenario. So it is actually quite a narrow market geographically. Um, spreading, it will be good if it does spread because of sociological reasons. You don't want a rich urban and a poor rural that's that's not a good f- political future for a country in that sense. So for that reason, I think they're good. I think there's issues you've got to watch for them. But net, net, they're going, they're, I think they're humming along quite nicely. And again, I think the smart investor now is saying, OK, we've played the China game, we've played the India game. Perhaps we really should look at some of the, the other markets which have got some dynamics in them, which not everyone else has fully appreciated.
0: How does the demographic dynamics in the Asia Pacific countries compare with those in the US and Europe? And what would be the key takeaways for investors?
1: Yeah, I mean, affluent Asia has very similar dem- demographic characteristics now to Western Europe. That is, an older consumer, a childless household, and quite a high income, and of course, good education standard. They're very, you know, in terms of, if you look at them just pragmatically in terms of numbers, their characteristics are very similar. Obviously, there are cultural differences, and that will influence consumption behavior to some extent. But the ability to consume, the ability to understand different media, um, freedom of movement, all of those issues are pretty much the same. So they're both very good markets to to look at. Um, uh, The... Probably the biggest difference between the two groups as a whole is Western Europe has a much better, if you like, social system in place. So the the need of Western Europeans to save for their health and their retirement is much lower than it is in the um, affluent Asian countries. that works for, for the Western countries a little bit more in the sense that people got more money to spend. Secondly, because of the very strong social system, even when the economies slow down, there's still money in the pocket of the consumer because they, you know, they get social benefit and things like that, which allow them to continue con- to consume, which helps those economies carry on through. So that's why the UK came through the 2008 slowdown quite nicely, because there was still money at the bottom end, if you like. Um, so it has a bit more sustainability. Um, North America, because I'll put Canada and America together, because they tend to be relatively similar demographically. Obviously, USA is a little more affluent than Canada, but we're not talking of major differences here. Um, It's different from Western Europe and different from affluent Asia because it still is a center of migration. Um, A significant number of people immigrate to those two countries every year. And the thing about the migrants into both those countries is they tend to be younger people. And they tend to have either have children or of the age that will have children as a result, while North America is affluent by world standards, it's much younger than you would expect it to be um, you know in the sense that affluent countries are normally older. So America gives you a younger affluent consumer, and that's why, for example, America does tend to, to lead in terms of consumption trends for young people. Cause that's where the young affluent are in the world. They're nowhere else. Um, young people anywhere else in the world tend to be quite poor, with, with exceptions, obviously, of young children in Hong Kong, but they're a minority of the population, is the example of what I'm saying. If you're talking about big consumer weights, then North America actually gives you that young affluent consumer, and they set a lot of trends. It creates an interesting situation for marketing people, because most a lot of marketing, of course, is driven by the U.S. Uh, U.S. attitudes, etc., and Canadians, and they apply it willy-nilly elsewhere in the world, and they miss some quite important points. You you shouldn't be selling young running well running shoes aimed for high impact sports for youths, etc., into a society such as Hong Kong, where most of the adults are over the age of forty. The demand for the type of shoes wanted there is actually very different from the ones wanted in North America. The running shoe manufacturers have opportunities in both markets, but they shouldn't have the same product in both markets because there is actually quite a difference. Um, Pharmaceutical products have quite different opportunities and they're two different markets. While they're both wealthy, one is older and therefore has a different need profile to the one that's biased to a younger population, etc. So you need to be a bit smarter uh, and and not just take the U.S. consumption pattern and apply it to wealthy Western Europe or wealthy Asia, because you've actually got different demographics there, and um, you you should think that through, um, and uh, not sort of just go in willy-nilly, assuming the same scenario will apply.
0: Dr. LeCron, thank you for sharing your thoughts on demographic dynamics. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series.